And we're going to look at the last section in that chapter, verses 14 through 20. Now, we've heard before, Deuteronomy is the book that God gave to Israel as they were standing practically on the shore of the Jordan River, ready to go into the promised land. And God was using this book, using this instruction to prepare them for a new situation, for a new place, a new challenge in their calling. And here, in this passage, he talks about their leaders, specifically their kings. They didn't have a king yet. They wouldn't have a king for a while, but God knew that they eventually would want one. They would demand one. And he knew that their temptation would be to model their king off the kings that they saw in the nations round about them. So this is a, a, a corrective action. Lest they have worldly kings, God established this, these commands to make sure their kings were godly, their kings were unique. Listen, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You, shall, you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. From the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel. Amen. Beloved servants of Christ our King, God's people are called to be different than those who belong to the world. We're called to be unique, and that includes every aspect of the calling God lays upon us. Even when, even when what we do looks quite similar to the things the world does. Like the government, the church seeks to meet the needs of those who are poor, those who can't meet their own needs. But the government worries only about verifying information and following guidelines and, and doing the precise letter of the law. Whereas the church, when it gives assistance, it worries more about the spiritual condition of those who receive. Using the assistance to show them the love of God and to get an opening for the gospel. Like many social organizations, the church has an annual meeting to elect leaders. But for most groups, the election is based on issues and popularity. For us, that voting, that casting of lots, as it were, is a means of discerning the will of God. These features and many others look similar to what the world does, but, but at heart, quite different, astonishingly different. And so it is with the leadership of the church. 
and how they carry out their calling. You're not brothers. You are not merely a board of corporators or the leaders of a secular business or even a social group. You are called to lead God's church, this manifestation of the kingdom of God, and the Lord wants you to do it rather differently than those outside of His kingdom would do. And that's what this passage is all about. That is what this passage is all about. God knew that they would eventually want a king. When they entered the land of Canaan, they had one king, and that was God. And they would be content, actually they would be content for hundreds of years to live with a sort of ad hoc leaders that God would raise up, the judges whom He would raise up in times of crisis and times of need. And to listen to the words of the prophets like Samuel when they gave instruction and to the priests when they led. But eventually in time, actually in the age of Samuel, they would decide that that was not enough. They wanted a king like those of the nations around them. And God showed them in this passage, you can't have a king like those of the nations around you. Because such a king would destroy you. Such a king would abuse you. Such a king would not advance the kingdom of God. And so God establishes here boundaries so that the king would bless his people. And that's our theme. God establishes the king's boundaries to bless God's people. And the first thing we see is how the king was to be appointed, how he was to be brought into office, and it was to be a God-honoring appointment. Our text starts by looking forward. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Again, this is looking forward. This passage wouldn't be applied in the life of Israel for several hundred years. But when they finally decided they needed a king, he said there are three criteria to how you appoint them. Two positive, one negative. I want to look at those in reverse because it starts with the most important and that's where I want to end. First of all, or last of all, he says you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now that may seem obvious to us. Of course, you wouldn't set an Ammonite or a Moabite or a Philistine over you. But, but don't forget that people are political beings. Looking at the, the kings of the nations around them, especially after a few hundred years had passed, since they had seen manna fall from the sky, since they had watched water pour forth from a rock, they would see the effectiveness and the efficiency of those kings around them and and one of those kings may offer, let me lead your people. I'll do it much more effectively, much more powerfully. I will make you respected among all the nations of the world. And they would be tempted to set a foreign man over them. And God said, no, you may not trade your principles because as the king goes, so go the people. So you may not trade your principles for pragmatically effective leadership. You may not set a foreigner over you, but from one from among your brethren, you shall set his king over you. An Israelite shall rule over Israel. God's people are holy, and therefore they must be led by one of the holy ones. God wants his people 
to be led by one who would point them to Him very intentionally. But most importantly, He says, You shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. They must not set a king over them based on popularity, based on promises, based on their political platform. That's what we see in our nation, right? Who has the most money, who's most... Uh, effective on camera, who makes the right promises to the right people. He says, no, you shall set over you the one who I select, whom I have chosen. Now, of course, Jesus was the true and perfect king to whom all of this points. He was chosen by God from the very start. When, when the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary in Luke 1, He said that this son will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Generations before the prophets spoke of Jesus. When for instance in Isaiah 9 they said of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice and of course we just sang from Psalm 2 where God said of Jesus that he was the son whom God would set upon the throne so Jesus he was the king whom God selected from before all time a true Israelite a true brother of God's people, raised by a man from the line of, of uh, David, of Judah, born of a woman from the line of Levi, circumcised on the eighth day, fiercely devoted to God and to His Word. But nonetheless, ironically, the leaders of Israel in that day preferred the rule of foreigners, didn't they? Jesus came as the one who perfectly fit the criteria. Chosen by God, a brother among brothers. And yet what did they complain as Jesus spoke His words and did His works? If we let Him alone like this, everyone will believe in Him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were more worried about what the foreigners would do. How the Romans would react. But despite the hatred of his countrymen, Jesus was made king. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And today he is enthroned in heaven itself, ruling over all the the world. But until he returns, he has chosen to exercise that rule within the church by his office bearers. Ministers who proclaim that word to his people. Elders who shepherd and guard and rule the people, deacons who set before the people the calling and the example of service. In raising up these men, the church does well to pay close attention to these qualifications that we might be sure we have leaders who please please the Lord. Therefore, the men whom we set over us must not be foreigners. But in our context, that's not referring to something nationalistic. Because now, God calls His people from every land, from every nation. But foreigners, that speaks to the faith of the men. The kingdom to which they give their hearts. We must not set men over us whose hearts belong to a kingdom other than God's kingdom. That's why when we ordain these men or install them, some of them have been ordained, 
we ask them to sign, every one of them, whether they've done it or not in the past, we ask them to sign the form of subscription. That's their way of saying everything the church confesses, that's what I believe. That's what I hold firm to. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to die. I'm give, willing to give of my, my treasure and my reputation for these truths that God has set before me. Because my allegiance is to God as my king and to his church as my kingdom. That's what it means to not set a foreigner over us. A man who is not willing to sign that form before God and his people. He's not truly one of us. And he can be trusted. He can be absolutely sure to lead God's people astray if he won't hold firm to those truths. Moreover, we must appoint those who are brothers. That's not saying precisely the same thing because you can know all the facts. You can confess all the truths without it ever penetrating the depth of your heart. But it is what happens in our hearts. It is our faith in Christ that unites us, that joins us spiritually to Him and thereby joins us to one another. Our brothers and sisters are those who love the Lord our God. And so, my friends, we are called to set over us those and only those who truly, deeply love the Lord our God, who are committed to Him. If they don't have Jesus as both their Savior and their Lord, they must not lead over the church of Christ. They must be our brothers and they must be chosen by God. And that's why we appoint them the way we do. First, the consistory makes a list of those men who are qualified to serve. And then the council meets together, discusses them, and nominates men whom they believe are gifted to these offices. But it, it's then that the congregation intervenes, casting together their lots, voting, just like Acts 1 shows us, praying as we do, that God will use our vote to demonstrate those whom He has set apart, whom He has chosen. So when we ordain our elders, deacons, and ministers, we ask them, do you feel in your hearts that you are lawfully called of God's church and consequently of God Himself to these your respective holy offices? Because we believe God calls His people very concretely, very truly, through the means that He uses in the church. And that He will equip and use powerfully those whom He has called. We must strive for a God-honoring appointment of our office bearers. And once they've been appointed to their office, these men are called to guard themselves carefully. That's the next part of our text where we find that these four man-centered prohibitions. And we need to briefly look at those prohibitions because in these four commands we find well we find a means of guarding the men who lead us from two sins in particular pride and trusting in men our leaders today you men need these same prohibitions that the kings of old needed first the lord warns you may not multiply horses for yourself now horses aren't inherently sinful but the kings of the ancient world gathered horses for two reasons. For one thing, in the ancient Near East, horses were not common, right? It wasn't like the farms that our forefathers grew up on where every farm had a couple horses. No, they didn't do that. 
They had oxen with which to plow. Some people had donkeys to ride and carry burdens, but horses were for the the rich, the powerful, the noble, and for the army. And so a king who amassed for himself many horses, thousands of horses, he was doing two things. He was taking pride in himself. He was saying, everybody look at me and look at my men, how rich, how powerful, how worthy they are. And he was also saying, look at my army. There was no weapon of war more effective in that age than the horse. A horse could take a, an army that was already strong and powerful and, and numerous and could make them faster and harder hitting, whether by mounting the troops as cavalry or by putting them on chariots and making them hit even harder. And so with this provision, God was saying, you must not allow your king to give in to pride in himself or to trust in an army of men and horses. And so too our leaders today. Now, they're not tempted to multiply horses, but they, they may be tempted to multiply authorities. You brothers are called to do your work by two means, by prayer and by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are your weapons. Prayer and God's Word. But how tempted we can be to substitute God's Word for the authorities on God's Word. This one quotes Calvin. That one quotes Burkhoff. The other one brings out Huxema. And pretty soon we have a warring or a, a dueling battle of theologians and authorities and seminary professors, but we've forgotten to go back to God's Word. Or we go to the people of God and we say, you know, this leader and that authority says this, that, and the other. And remember this minister whom we all esteemed and how he said, but no. Brothers and sisters, we should study our theology. We should know what God has entrusted to us in terms of the truth. But we should always go back to God's Word. This is where the authority is found. This is the truth on which we must rely. Not men who can help us to understand this, but who are not the authorities on whom we rest. Nor shall we rest on the power of men. There's a temptation at times, especially when the sheep are a bit stubborn, to replace gentle spiritual care with bullying. When folks get out of line, you shame them, you harass them, you make them feel small. But no, we must come to God's people, men. We must come to God's people with the gentle love of the shepherd for his sheep. Allowing God and his word to be the source of power, not us, not our persuasiveness, not our cajoling. We must flee the temptation to trust in the ways and the power of the world. Likewise, God warns, nor shall he cause his people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Now, that sounds similar, but the emphasis here is not on horses, it's on Egypt. Because, you see, Egypt was a great supplier of horses. And so, to do that, to return to Egypt to multiply horses, that was to rely on the, not just the buying power of men, but the political power of men. Making alliances and allegiances so that you can strengthen your position in the wor- on the world stage. And God says you must not do it. Again, because of pride. The pride of being a player. 
among the nations of the world. And the trust that that getting in good with Egypt, getting in good with that arms supplier, would make their standing more firm in the face of Assyria and Babylon and Persia to come. Now don't get me wrong, brothers and sisters. This is not saying that we should have nothing to do with the politics of the land. But our role, our calling with regard to the politics of the land is not to ally with them. Our calling is to minister to them. We are to be Nathan to their David. And woe to us, woe to our land if we don't minister to the leaders of our land. But never should we be found negotiating with or seeking the favor of our political leaders. The church is not a political creature. Our king is infinitely greater than the kings of this world, and therefore it is in him that we trust. It is from him that we find our identity. So we must minister to the government. We must advise the government. We must pray for the government. But we must never think that our future rests in the leaders of this world. So brothers, minister to the world in which you are seated, but do not trust in it. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, says Moses. On the one hand, this is a warning against setting an ungodly example for Israel. God ordained for one man to be united to one woman and to become with her one flesh. To take many wives was to lead the people to ruin, to scorn that blessing that God has given in marriage. It was also a giving in to the ways of the world. Pagan kings, they showed their power, they showed their popularity, they showed their their strength, their virility, by the number of wives that they kept. But God says, no, my people must be different, refusing to turn after the love of many women. Instead, we must cultivate contentment from our lowliest to our greatest. We must cultivate contentment with that which God has given, that one wife whom He has allotted for me. And this also was a protection for the king, limiting him to one wife. Because a godly wife can be the greatest earthly help that a man has. But put a bunch of wives in the picture. And now the king will be distracted, deeply distracted from the things that matter because he's so focused on pleasing his wives. And that will ultimately always lead to compromise. Look at Solomon, a man of great wisdom and great power who was led astray to serve foreign gods by the multitude of wives that he faithlessly took. Brothers, this is a warning for you today. We're not tempted by polygamy, at least not yet. But we are surrounded by temptations to lust. From the flirty attitudes that are so common to the revealing clothing that has become so popular to the the pornography that is only one click of your mouse away. Brothers, we must guard our hearts and our marriages. Otherwise, we will lead the church astray. And we will testify falsely by our lives that faith in Christ changes nothing. And we ourselves will be led astray from the Lord, led to compromise. And that's not an overstatement at all. And brothers, what that means is that we must provide accountability for one another. If your brother comes to you and says, I am struggling with lust... Don't act all aghast as though you never have. But instead love him and comfort him. And you as the stronger brother walk alongside of him with accountability. 
And do not joke about your wives. Most of you don't, and I appreciate that. But cherish them. Despite the heavy burden God has set on you to lead His church, take your wife out for a date regularly. Love her, romance her, show the world that she is the most important person second only to Christ to you. Because thus you set before this church an example of what God intended for man, for our good and for the good of our children after us. And as you delight in her, the temptations of the world will fade and will become powerless over you. And then finally he says, nor shall he multiply greatly silver and gold. Now we know that money is not evil. It's merely a tool. It's an object for trading. But those who cherish money, again, they trust in themselves and they inflate their pride. Therefore, we must cultivate, as First, uh, First Timothy 6 says, godliness with contentment. Trusting God to give us precisely what we need. And not trusting in that which He has given, but in God Himself. And again, brothers, this is the way you can set before God's people an example Seeking first the kingdom of heaven and trusting that God will meet your needs, that God will provide. And as you go through hard patches, which you will, times when the money is tight, times when you just don't quite know how God's going to get you through this section, know that He's preparing you to minister to those who will go through rough patches. And as you learn to trust in Him, as you learn to wait on His provision... He will equip you to minister to those who will be going through that time. Brothers, we must strive diligently to avoid these temptations, whether horses or authorities, government or wives or or money. We must flee that which fills us with pride and reject whatever leads us to trust in men. Our trust must be in God alone and our identity must be in Christ. And the way we cultivate that is with the last thing we see in this text. There were many duties. Kings of old were no different than leaders of state today. There were a countless number of duties expected of them. They had no shortage of things with which to fill their time. But God ignores all of that. And He gives them one positive duty, one thing that they must, absolutely must do. It's His God-focused assignment. And that's our last point. The assignment itself is twofold. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. He must write a copy of the law. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. He says this law, which at minimum means the book of Deuteronomy, but more likely means the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. Borrowing an original from the priests... The king's assignment was to write out a copy for himself. And then, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. The king was to study the law of God constantly. It was to be his reference, teaching the king the difference between right and wrong. It was to be his constant companion, that he might never fail to hear the word of God. And the Lord gave four goals in the study of that law. First, it must teach him to fear the Lord his God, to fear the Lord, to know him, to trust him, to have faith in him. Fearing the Lord is the most important thing that any man can learn. 
and as the king whose life stands as an example for the people, it's an absolute requirement that he learn to fear the Lord. And then the king must learn to carefully observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Obeying God is the way that we demonstrate our faith in God. And if the king refuses to obey God, well, that shows where his allegiance is, doesn't it? And it shows where the people's allegiance will be. The history of God's people is rife with this. When the kings rejected the law of God, so did the people. But when the kings loved the Lord, when the kings served him with devotion, then the people began to return to the Lord. So the king must learn to observe what God has commanded. And further, this law will keep his heart from being lifted up above his brethren, he says. Due to his position, the king would always be tempted to pride. Any leader faces that. Feeling he's maybe just a bit better. The people recognized it. But the law, the law humbles us. Reminds us that every single person in the kingdom of God is in the same boat. From the lowliest to the most exalted, from the youngest to the oldest, we're sinners. We're sinners who fall short of the glory of God, who wrestle every day of our lives with temptations and often fall prey to them. Every one of us depends not on ourselves, not on our strength, but on the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness before God. The law humbles the king, casting him broken at the feet of the Savior, and it guards him that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. As a man studies the law of the Lord, it teaches him to cherish the Lord himself deeply and to be thankful for his mercy and therefore to love him with all his heart and soul, mind and strength. And that will not develop in a man who does not spend time in the Word of God. And therefore, brothers, you know what your assignment is. You don't need, you don't need to write it out anymore. You can just head down to the, the bookstore. Shoot, you can go to Walmart and get a copy in three or four different translations. But it must be your constant companion. You can put it on your cell phone and read it while you're sitting at the stoplight. But you must read it. You must study it. You must learn it. You must love it. Because by this word, brothers, your faith will be deepened. Your fear of God strengthened. You will learn to obey His law. And by your example, you will teach them to obey the law. But most of all, you will learn... To be humble. Because you always fall short of that law. You always fail to uphold God's commands. And so you know, you know more each time you read that word that you must rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will see that humility. They will see how humbly you draw near before the Lord. And how in love and devotion to Him you do not turn to the side, either to the right or to the left. But brothers, you will not have that they will not see that in you if this is not your constant daily companion beloved people of god we as god's people must be different than the people of the world and so must our leaders you men have been called to serve 
Not by us, but by God. He has called you as those who are not foreigners, but brothers selected by the Lord our God. Now the calling comes to you to protect your hearts together with all of these men. And to protect your lives. Not resting in yourself, not resting in the power and the opinions of men. But instead finding your identity and your purpose and your strength in God who reveals himself in that word. Brothers and sisters, pray for them that they might apply these prohibitions and this command to their lives with great power. And pray that God would use these men, weak though they are, weak though we all are, to build up and strengthen His kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You. For You are the great and holy God. And there is none like you. We pray that you would bless our leaders and make them distinct and different. Because they love you and they serve you and they belong to you. And Father, we pray that you would bless the church through their labors and through their example. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.